glad we're off the roaring start now, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> uh, listen, this is not going to be an easy message. I'm just going to tell you up front. But it ends well. And so we're going to end well. But in the beginning, in the middle, maybe not so much. And uh, but I got to tell you, you know, when you live through these things and put a message together, it, uh, it's probably worse for me than it is for you. But just trust me that God is good. And you will find that out. We'll revisit that at the end. We'll see it actually through the whole message. But our passage this morning is what we're going to look at is Galatians 5, 16 through 21. And we're also going to sneak over and look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 so that we can get the good news. I want to start out, I just want to say that you know, one thing that you learn when they tell a new preacher in seminary is to avoid preaching lists. And of course, the next two weeks, we have two lists. This one is the, the works of the flesh, and Matt will be speaking about the fruit of the Spirit next week. But I always wondered why my preaching props would steer me away from lists. Lists actually look easier to preach on because all you have to do is just preach each thing in the list. But sometimes what happens is, is that by preaching a list and just looking at individual components of it, we miss why there's a list in the first place. We miss the point of the passage. The list that we have today is a list of sins of what Paul calls the works of the flesh. And looking at the passage, it seems really, you know, in Joe Nuggets, like a layup to just jump to the list of the flesh and pick each one apart. And we'll do that with a couple of them. But mainly today, what I want to do is look at them in bunches that go together. But this is why we struggle, because again, if we were just to look at each component, we would miss the point of what Paul was trying to tell us. Thankfully, over the last couple weeks, we've already hit on many of the works of the flesh already, and Matt took us pretty far into it last week, so we don't have to beat each other over the head with each one of these for 10 minutes, so it'll be great. So we're going to be fine. And the good news is, that at the end, we are going to see the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to learn what do we do when we find each other in sin. How do we find restoration? And when we get done, I know, and just as a reminder, after service today, out at the park, we're having a sending party for the Ritz. And after this message, you're probably going to need a party. You're going to need a potluck. You're going to need some cake. You're going to need to have some fun. So I invite you now to think ahead. And once this is over, the fun begins. So we'll get through this, okay? Let's read our passage this morning. And I'm actually going to read a little further than where we're going to go today, just so that we can also include the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Starting in verse 16 in Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, 
jealousies, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I've warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And then the last few verses in chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, we come before you, and we know that this is a heavy word that you're bringing this morning, but we are, we are thankful that we have your word where we can talk about the hard things and know that you did the hardest thing by taking all of our sins that we commit upon yourself on the cross. I pray, God, that you will help me to deliver this message in a way that brings you glory and is not afraid to tell the truth. I pray, God, that all of us here today would hear what we need to hear. And that would be that, yes, we're all sinners, but we can all be restored because of what you have done and not what we have done. And we are grateful for that, Lord. Help us to learn to walk in the Spirit and that we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we start out, I'm just going to break this down. I don't really have a lot of points in this because, honestly, the verses themselves tell the story. But we're going to start on verse 16, and there's a lot actually in verse 16. But verse 16 says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the first thing we need to notice is Paul is giving command to walk. To walk where? And to walk with whom? Well, we walk with the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul is reminding the Galatians, that they are spirit-filled Christians. They are to walk with the Spirit. And we need to keep in mind, too, that walking, or to walk, is an active verb. It is not passive. It doesn't mean to sit on the couch and walk. By actively walking with the Holy Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And that's, that's a lot. Let's break down what Paul means by that. What is Paul saying about gratifying the desires of the flesh? When we look at this grammatically, it really breaks it out and we kind of get the true sense of what he's trying to say. It means this. It means that you will not fulfill or complete the desire for what is forbidden, what you are lusting after with your Holy Spiritless, means before you were a Christian, sin-filled nature that lusts for sin. The main verb in this is gratify, and Paul is using it in the aorist tense, which means that this is something that has already happened in the past. They, the Galatians, and you and I have already done this. 
It's why we know that we are sinners. Not a single person is above this. So by breaking it down, what Paul is doing is he is warning Christians to not go back to the lust of their old pre-Jesus life. Because you now have the Holy Spirit in you. God lives in you. Hold on to that, because that is the good news. As Christians, we are to walk then with him every day. All day. If not, there is a danger that you will slip back into your old self. This is Paul's warning. You might ask, well, how can that be? I thought my old self was dead, and now I'm a new creation, created in the image of Christ. How then can I slip back into something that is dead and lifeless? Well, those are legitimate questions, and I appreciate you asking those this morning, as I've asked myself these questions all week. Let's read verse 17 now, as Paul explains it to us. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So Paul writes that the desires or the lusts of the flesh, our entire spiritless, sin-filled nature is in opposition to the Holy Spirit. And the ESV then says that the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. But honestly, this is an interesting rendering from the Greek and the ESV. Because in the Greek, it doesn't say the desires of the spirit. It only says desires once. The NESV says this. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things you please. You see, there is a war raging inside of us for our very souls. The ultimate war of good versus evil. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives inside of each of us is in opposition to our flesh and its lusts. And I'm not talking just about sexual lust here, although that is so powerful as we know, but there's lust for other things like power and position, a title, an income level, for recognition, to be liked, to be loved, for material things. We want to be important. We want to matter to somebody or something. And we will do all we can to fulfill this desire. And it becomes its own idol at times. So the lusts of the flesh keep us from doing the things that we want to do. We want to do good because we are filled with the Spirit, but if we are not walking in or with the Spirit, we will fall and fall hard. And we read about that all the time. We talk about spiritual warfare a lot, and we always think first of the devil when we talk about it, but he is not the only thing that we fight against. There's actually three things that we fight against in our spiritual warfare. And the first one is Satan. The second one is ourselves, our flesh. And the third is the world. The misnomer that we have is that we think our biggest enemy is Satan. And he is powerful, but he is not God. And God has no equal. Satan is under God's sovereignty. 
I would argue that our biggest enemy is ourselves, our lack of faith, our lack of trusting in God, our lack of recognizing that our sinful desires are a problem. We say about our sin, we say, well, I have it under control. I am fine. No one needs to know about this. So we leave it hidden. We think it is safe in its little hiding place because we fear that if it gets out in the open and people find out about this thing that I have done or I did, that my life and my relationships will be destroyed and it will be over. And that is the opposition that our flesh is having against the spirit because nothing more, nothing could be more of a lie. I read a Gospel Coalition article this week where the author quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote this about sinners hiding in church. It says, the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone in our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. But then Bonhoeffer writes this about that sin and confession and the freedom it brings. In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. He continues, if that wasn't enough. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpected must be openly spoken and acknowledged. Now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God for the cross of Jesus Christ. Now he can be a sinner and still enjoy the grace of God. He can confess his sin and in this, very, in this very act, find fellowship for the first time. The sin concealed separated him from the fellowship, made all his apparent fellowship a sham. The sin confessed has helped him to find true fellowship with the brethren in Jesus Christ. I know that's a hard word, and that's a lot from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but do you see what he's trying to say? He said, our flesh wants our sin to hide in the dark, to let it poison us. Even whole churches do not want to have sin brought into the light so it won't compromise their place in society or make them look bad. We don't allow sinners here, they say. Well, that is false piety. And I must say that Calvary must not be a church that follows this line of thinking. We are a church that must embrace confession of sin and bring sin into the light and let the gospel of Jesus Christ get the victory. Amen? Only then, only then 
and true fellowship of the believing church be lived out and experienced. There is no other way. There must be freedom. We need to help each other in sin find that freedom and fellowship with Christ. And we're going to get more to that in the end. But I want us to start thinking that way because this, this is what Paul is driving all of this passage to. I want to illustrate this by talking about David's life and his sin with Bathsheba, which is why I had Matt read Psalm 51, and we're going to refer to that in a minute. We remember the story in 2 Samuel 11 where David saw the beautiful Bathsheba bathing. And David lusted after her, and he sent messengers to bring her to him. And in his word, it says that he laid with her, but let's just be real. He raped her, and she conceived. In the end, he had her husband killed, and he took Bathsheba as his own wife. Then in 2 Samuel 12, the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to David, and Nathan reveals to David what the Lord knows about his sin. Nathan tells David a riddle about a person being the victim of an unjust act, and David's anger boils. And David said, the man who acted unjustly must be killed. And we get to these words from Nathan as we read directly from 2 Samuel 12, 7-13. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your home because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your own neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. But you did. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Nathan was to die. And as true as God's word is true, that child did die. And he was replaced later with Solomon, but that child did die. God's word is true. He does not screw around with sin. He does not mess around with it at all. But sometime after this, David wrote Psalm 51. And that's why I wanted Matt to read the entire psalm, because I, I don't have time to read the entire psalm. But I wanted us to hear the words of a man who was repentant. A man who knew that he messed up. And he went to the Lord. And this is how we are to react when we sin. He says in verse 1, 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. And you heard the rest of the psalm, and I I really want to just go to what is the heart of a repentant person? What does God look for in a person when they're in sin? How does God restore a person? And he says this. David says this. For you will not delight in sacrifice that I would give it. In other words, there are no works that I can bring to you that are going to please you. There is nothing I can give to you. I can't sacrifice enough to satisfy what I have done. I can't do it. David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God wants us to come to him in a humble heart, a contrite heart, a heart that knows that he is the Lord and only he can provide us forgiveness. When our sin is hidden in the secret, when it comes out into the light, Yes, there are consequences, but there's also forgiveness. There's restoration. There's hope. It's when we sit in the darkness of our sin where the enemy, Satan, accuses us and points his finger at us and tells us that you are no good. You're a worthless bum. Nobody would forgive you. Who do you think you are? And so we sit there in our sin in the darkness and, and we just live in it actually bring it out into the light and let the Lord do his miraculous work that he did on the cross to forgive us and to restore us back to himself where we find freedom. There's freedom in Christ. Freedom in confession. Freedom in restoration. I told you this about David because I wanted to really show you what unconfessed Sin and living in the flesh does. We think that sin is only affecting ourselves. Again, it's more sin because that's just our pride speaking. That we've got this. We're not affecting them. We can do whatever we want because we're only hurting ourselves and I don't care. Well, let me tell you. Sin is like an octopus. And its tentacles affect everyone around us. First of all, it grieves the Holy Spirit that lives in us. And we should never want to believe that. But it also takes down marriages and families. It takes down churches. It takes us down into the pit of hell. It wants us to leave us there in the mire and the muck. And as we look to verses 18 through 21, now we're, we're actually going to get to this list. I'm afraid I've been trying to put this list off, but here we are. So here we go. Starting in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, which really means carousing, and things like these. You see? As horrible as that list is, that wasn't even the whole list. 
cultures and things like these. There's more. If our depravity wasn't enough in that list of things that he just gave us, there's more. There's more. And then he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Before we read that list, before the list itself, Paul reminds the Galatians of one thing. One thing that he has been saying over and over again in this letter. That if you are in the Spirit, if you are in Christ, if you are a believing Christian in Christ alone, you are not under the law that brings condemnation and death. Paul writes this to the Roman church in Romans 7, 21 through 25. This is Paul talking about himself. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I, ser- I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Even the Apostle Paul, the former Pharisee and expert in the law, knows how condemning the law of Moses is. It shows us our sin, it identifies our sin. It takes us to that list and reminds us how far we are from our own holy God. But as Paul rejoices in Romans 7.25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Without the Spirit, our flesh wants to serve the law of sin. But when we drop down to Galatians 5.25, Paul says that if we live By the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So we can serve the law of God, which as Matt pointed out last week in his sermon, is summed up in one sentence. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Sin is selfish. It's about satisfying our flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Just a horrifying list. Former pastor and theologian John Stott breaks the list down into four categories. We're not going to look at each one of these sins in the list individually, but we will look at the categories. The first one, of course, is sex, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. The second one is religion, idolatry, and sorcery. The third one is society, which also deals with behavior inside the church, which we'll talk about in a minute. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. And the fourth is drinking or drugs mind-altering things that cause us to make decisions that we would not normally make. Drunkenness and orgies, or a better term again, is carousing or partying. 
And then Paul says, or things like these, because we talk about this is not an exhaustive list. There's more. But let me help define just a few of these things. I don't, like I said, I don't have time to go through everyone, but, but this list regarding sex is really talking about anything done outside the married couple's bedroom. God made sex to be between one man and one woman who are married together. The man and the woman in marriage become one flesh, one person united in a beautiful relationship to give of each other to the other person alone. And really, that's all I'm going to say about that this morning. But if you want to have more talks about this, we can get coffee and we can talk. And I'd really love to do that. But the list on religion, including sorcery, which means dabbling with the occult, witchcraft, seances, palm readers, anything like this where we try to encounter wisdom from someplace outside of the Lord and his word. Why would we ever do such a thing? And I think about this, when we can pray straight to the Lord and know he hears and answers our prayers. Why would we ever need the occult? And I'm telling you, this includes some of the Native American traditions like sweat lodges. These things are evil. They're pagan. We should not participate in them. Now, the list on society or like church learning, this long and extensive list is basically what Paul's been talking about throughout this letter and how it affects the church, the bride of Christ. They are all self-centered things people do when they don't live by the spirit and the law of God to love one another, to be an encourager, to build people up instead of tearing them down, even behind their back. It's people who are angling for a title or position, people who are jealous of the attention or affection another person might be getting, or the gifting of another person, envious of others and what they have, and what they have as opposed to living in peace with what the Lord has blessed them with. I have seen people live out this list and have torn down churches out of envy and jealousy, creating strife and false rumors about leadership in the church so they can look more important and in the know. And it tore down and split our church. Maybe you've been involved in a church split, and I can assure you they are not fun and sometimes churches don't recover. Do you want your sin to be responsible for tearing down the bride of Christ? I hope you say no. The list on drinking or altering our minds is one that is really prevalent today. It should be self-explanatory, but sometimes I wonder. Getting drunk and high is not of God. This allows you to not be in the right mindset, to not be in the right place, and you will make bad judgments, and things will have lifelong consequences. Things that you would not normally do, but now your guard is down because your mind is screwed up. You should be filled and drunk with the Holy Spirit, and not with wine or high on whatever drug of choice. But there are two lists, the works of the flesh, which we just talked about, and the fruit of the Spirit, which we read earlier. Which list do you find yourself in most of the time? If it's in the works of the flesh, then let the second half of verse 21 be a stark warning to you. 
I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it probably brings up this question, is, is Paul talking about can we lose our salvation? Is this what he is saying? And let me say emphatically, no. If you find yourself living in the works of the flesh a lot, then I would say that your salvation, if you think you have it, is in question. I would say you might not be a saved person. That you are not filled with the Holy Spirit. And I say that because a Christ-following Christian cannot live in that list long. Now we've read that it is a battle, so occasionally you might find yourself there. But you must find yourself out of there as quickly as you possibly can. You cannot dwell there. There is death there. We must repent and get out quickly. Spirit-filled Christians will live most of their lives in the fruit of the Spirit. The gift that God gives the believer who has been transformed from the first list to the second list. I'm going to let Matt talk more about this next week. We need to move on. So how do you and I as individuals and as a church help each other through sin? What do we do when we find someone in our church body who falls into the list of the works of the flesh? Paul addresses those in chapter 6, verse 22. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul says if anyone is caught, meaning detected, in any transgression or sin, we who are walking in the Spirit are to restore them. Restore means to strengthen or, or make perfect, to bring somebody back to where they should be in Christ, not in the flesh. And we're supposed to do this in a spirit of gentleness. Keep in mind our duty is to restore. This is an imperative by Paul. This is a command. It is not optional. This is our duty as Christians. And we do this because we think of how many times the Lord and the Holy Spirit brought us out of our own transgressions. Notice Paul isn't saying bring the person before the church and paint him black to point out that they are a sinner and then waylay them with accusation after accusation and kick them to the curb and say away with you you frightful sinner that you are. No, he says we are to come alongside in gentleness or in a mild disposition in meekness. And meekness is not weakness. Meekness and being gentle means to bring power and strength, much more than a harsh and a bitter spirit would bring. Would you, if caught in your sin, rather be confronted in gentleness or anger? Which person do you think you'd be more likely to want to be restored or be willing to be restored by? Paul tells us that we are to bear with one another's burdens and so fulfill Christ's love, our law to love one another. The world is about condemnation and accusation. Just watch the news. They're after each other all the time. I don't care who it is. They're not about reconciliation. They're about condemnation. 
When a person comes into a church, they should see something different than what they see in the world outside the doors. They should see people bearing each other's burdens. They should see people gently restoring each other, encouraging one another. All of you should read the book, The Relentless Encourager. And you can ask Don Griggs about that book because he's read it. It is an amazing book about what it means to be an encourager. And Don told me, he, Don doesn't know that I'm talking about him in this sermon, but I'm going to talk about him again. Don told me something this week that stuck with me all week long. The Calvary is not about throwing people out. We're not about being done with people. We care about restoration and fixing people. And I am so grateful Don sees us that way, that our culture and our church, as manifested by Matt through the power of the Holy Spirit and his leadership, speaks that way. We must be that way because that is the way our Savior and Lord Jesus, who bore our burdens on the cross and took upon himself the wrath of his Father against our sins. He took the flogging. He took every nail. He took it all for us. And now it is our turn to be like him and to lead others to him so they can be restored and loved and find the life like we did. Which list do you find yourself in today? Do you need someone to come alongside you and help carry you and take your burden to Christ? Are you living in the darkness of a silent sin that you're afraid for anyone to find out about? Do you need restoration? This I know. All of you, at least most of you, are living in secret sin. And that's hard to hear. But I am telling you, don't do it any longer. Trust God. Trust Him. He is about restoration. He can bring it into the light. And He can bring forgiveness. And He can bring freedom. Would you not want to be free? What does it mean to be free in Christ? To be free of the burden of the sin that you are carrying around, the shame and the guilt and the pain and the hurt. Let's return to Bonhoeffer's words on confession because this is so true. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. Now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. Now he can be a sinner and still enjoy the grace of God. He can confess his sins in this very act, find fellowship for the first time. The sin concealed separated him from the fellowship, made all his apparent fellowship a sham. The sin confessed has helped him find true fellowship with the brethren, Jesus Christ. Our church must be a church of love and restoration. We have a Lord Jesus whom we all know. Those that I know of you in here who would call yourselves Christians, you know what Christ has done for you. And if there is someone here who does not know what Christ has done for you and needs him, now is the time to turn. 
If you are hiding something in secret today, then you need to get it out into the light. Maybe right now is not the time, but maybe it is. Come. Come to me. Come to Matt. Come to Dennis. Come to anyone you know that you trust and confess your sin. We're not here to beat you up. We are here to restore you back to your Lord and Savior. You can be free. Maybe for the first time ever in your life. And I can truly say that being free in Christ is being free at last. Every day you can wake to proclaim. 